Please uh, take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. This morning we'll be looking at the sixth commandment. But before we do that, I want to remind the church that next Sunday we will be baptizing and receiving new members. And um, they're pretty excited about that, thankful for that. Uh, we got a good-sized group that's coming in. And so let me just say this. Um, if you're here, obviously we had the class already, but you desire uh, to join the church, um, you can still come to us. We have a full week. We basically take people through an interview. Um, and those requirements for membership are two things. An affirmation of the gospel and that you've received Jesus by faith alone in Christ alone. And then um, that you have been baptized because baptism marks you with the local assembly and it tells the world at large that you're a follower of Jesus. So baptism really is the sign which uh, points to the faith that you possess. And um, so if that's, if that's you and you want to join, um, I mean, it's one of, the, one of the most enjoyable things we do, Pastor Alex and I, uh, specifically, um, we get to listen to people's conversions, and they're amazing, and they're they're different yet the same because all end up finding their rest in Jesus. And um, we are always approachable. We don't um, push anybody into anything. I think anybody I look around the room, everybody knows that about us. Um, we desire everyone that walks through those, you know, that sidewalk to get in this place, become a part of us, and yet we know that that's a work of God that we are trusting in alone, but we make ourselves available. You can have our phone numbers. You can reach out to us. We just want you to know uh, that we want you to know Jesus, and man, is this ever a great place to be a part of. Um, I'm thankful for Christ Community Church for a lot of reasons. So, that takes place next Sunday. This morning, our text specific for the Sixth Commandment is found in verse 13. You shall not murder. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, now as we have opened your word, we have sang your word, Lord, we have... Um, come this morning as your church, your people, to listen to your word, to receive its instruction, to allow for its correction and affirmation in the truth, Lord, that we would leave this place, having learned of you to follow you, Jesus, better through, of course, the accomplishment and work of your son Jesus and the enabling and the leading and the guiding of your Holy Spirit for our lives. Lord, 
if there is someone here this morning, we know you know all hearts and minds. If there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus, we pray according to your grace this morning. May the Spirit of God illuminate their minds, awaken their hearts, recognize their sin, repent and to trust in Christ. We pray and ask for these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You don't roll very far into the Bible to see murder. In Genesis chapter 3, we know of course is the fall where Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And as a result, they were expelled from the garden. And in the very first family, Cain kills his brother Abel. Lust to sin has corrupted many of men's hearts. Lust for power, lust for women, lust for money, they will absolutely kill for it. Within that same chapter, Lamech takes two wives and then proceeds to brag about killing a man. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically why he killed him. It just simply says that he killed him. But the problems that we incur today, beyond just society's ills, but of course our own hearts, is really consistent. There is an anthropology of who we are as people and of men. We're simply fallen. And that fallenness will take us anywhere. And we are fully capable of anything. Um, I reminded or thought of this. Um, there were two people, both my brother and a Russian missionary, that told me when Drew was born, the responsibility that I was going to have in his life. And man, I sensed that uh, right away when he came into the earth. We were joy-filled. But I remembered in that moment, in that day, that... Every child that is born is capable of murder. And don't think your little beautiful one is not. That is the anthropology and the consistency of Scripture. If you follow God's people Israel throughout the Old Testament, they have this problem of sin and um, there was specifically a god, a false god named Molech, that is attributed to the Phoenicians and certainly the Canaanites. And basically, wherever Israel is at in the Old Testament, they are surrounded or encamped by the worshipers of Molech. And Molech was in the same family with the corrupt god Baal, so they had much of the same of worship interests. If you were to look at, like to take an archaeology book, or actually Google this, because, because we're, <laughs> we have access to information so easy, 
of the Molech God as he was um, put together as an idol. He had a bull's head. He had a human body with outstretched arms. And at the base of this idol was a large furnace. And this furnace um, is where Israel, when they mix married with the people of Phoenician or Canaanites, whatever they were, and they would worship Molech, is they would sacrifice their babies into that furnace. They would put them into a, a fiery furnace. And I'm sure you're like me, and you would wonder, why in the world would that take place? What could cause people in their right minds to, you know, put their, their children, their helpless children, into a furnace like that? And as a part of the worship of Molech, this false god, they believed in so sacrificing your children, you would get prosperity. You would get wealth. That was the purpose of it. And also, as a part of the worship of Molech, as they worshipped this false god, they did it in sexual rituals. So again, here's the dynamic, right, of the corruption of, of men. A lust for money, prosperity, a lust for sex, which is really insatiable outside of the contentment that God gives with one man and one woman. I mean, no, no matter what you think of the advancements of this age, life has really not changed since the garden. Our own country, you know this. I'm not going to stay on this long because we talk about it often on the text, but I think the text obviously calls for this. Abortion has killed 60 to 65 million babies. Why? Doctors ask would-be parents to take a test because if the test comes back and there's a genetic failing, well, you can go ahead and just abort the baby. So parents sometimes choose to abort a child just because it's going to cost them a little more. And their baby is perhaps autistic or whatever it could be, some form of health failure. I've talked with nurses, even in our own congregation, that do this now, that, that women will come in to get to know the sex of the baby, and they are going to determine whether they're going to abort the baby based on the sex. I genuinely believe we've become desensitized to death. That is sick. It's ever been as sick as what those people did to sacrifice to Molech. It's incomprehensible. But life to children aren't one thing that, you know, we cast off in our own society. But we're really doing this in a lot of realms because, um, boy, we just 
care more about money in our country than anything. We're casting off the elderly. And this is, uh, this is happening a lot. I've done a lot of funerals since I've been here the last um, 28 years. And I've heard this come up at funerals. I've watched it. I've visibly seen it. Right? So you're either doing funerals with people in the church or, or families that are connected to the church. And of course, here's always been the motto, we will, we will bury any, but we won't marry many because obviously there's qualifications for that. You're going to disobey God. We don't want to disobey God. But funerals are always an opportunity to present the gospel. And I have witnessed where families have been in arguments over their parents' inheritance. Recall one time that two brothers hadn't spoken to each other in 40 years. And in the death of the dad, the other brother didn't show because the one brother was going to be there. The perversities and the crazies. And we really... This happens around these two things, that men lust for power, they lust for women, they lust for money. I have yet to see families argue over who will take their parent into their home. And you know, that's how things used to be. I know my parents took in my mom's mom until they couldn't keep her, uh, but that's how things were done. You know, Whitechapel Cemetery and cemeteries in general were just basically cast off away from the church because, you know, our culture does not want to think about death, but they want to consume to their lust every single thing that they possibly can. And if we're honest, we're like that too. You could spend the time this afternoon on the elderly, but I found articles on how the government is concerned over the elderly and how much it's taking to, to allow them to live. You can find articles in the New York Post, the Washington Post, the New York Times, Forbes magazine, and institutes that have been put together by our own country country to look at aging and the problem uh, that the country's undergoing. Well, we should never consider life a problem. We want to embrace life. Moses wrote these words eventually to paper as God penned them to him. The sixth commandment is this, you shall not murder. Well, what did this mean specifically to Israel or God's people? So I want to kind of set a little groundwork. And I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. So we can kind of shape what the Bible tells us how God's people would have looked at from the command of Yahweh, you shall not murder. 
Now here's a simple definition for this. Murder is the unlawful or immoral killing of another human being. And in the law, if we were to go through the law, the law distinguishes, the Mosaic law distinguishes between manslaughter and premeditated murder. Okay? Uh, we're not going to turn for these things, but we just want to have a backdrop as to what God's people would have thought of. Murder is never applied to Israel when they were at war. And murder is never qualified as murder under capital punishment. And I just want to give you a few verses for this. We won't turn there. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17. Numbers chapter 35, verse 30 through 34. So, the law distinguishes between manslaughter and premeditated murder. And Israel... Um, when they went into war, could certainly defend themselves and defend their nation. And also, as a part of the Old Testament, beginning from Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God enacted capital punishment. Now, later in the law, he'll define how capital punishment should take place, is it had to have two witnesses in order for capital punishment to take place. Now, for the, all of these things, when you're thinking about Israel, I want you to look at verse 26. This is how Israel knew they were created. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us, that is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us, the Trinity, alive from eternity past, at a point in time said, let us make man... That's all of humanity in our image after our likeness. Humanity is created in the image of God. Human life is sacred for all because humanity bears God's image. And, and I will just submit this to you. This is a, a Kevinism, right? What that simply means is it's not in the Bible, but it's my thought process on the, the way we're so desensitized to death is we worship in humanism now in our country. It's a result of evolution. We just think of nothing's any different than the other and survival of the fittest. So if someone is weaker, we want to cast them aside. We simply... The strong survive. There is no care for all of humanity who God says were created in his image. And Israel certainly knew that. So as a result, God's people were to see human life as sacred because they were created in God's image, God loves life, God is the one who created life, and he is the one that gives you and I, church, new life in Christ. It is God in him alone. So Israel was 
to not commit murder. Rather, on the opposite end of this, they were to value life. They were to value all life, even strangers. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, Israel was created in part to be a light to the nations. We know this was true, of course, in the covenant that God made with Abraham. Ultimately, of course, that would be fulfilled in Jesus so that all of humanity can know God because the true image bearer fulfilled the command of God. Zach read from our scripture reading this morning that Satan himself is a murderer. He is the father of all murder. Since the beginning, it was Satan who pursued Cain's heart to kill his brother Abel, who was incensed and coveted the esteem that God gave Abel. So not only did Israel understand that Satan was the father of all murders and that they were created in the image of God and they were to look at others, strangers that were not like them, they were to take them in and, and, and to promote life. Because our God is the God of the living. God loves life. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 says this, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God values life. And in his love for life, he wanted his people to do the same. And these were the commands that God's people heard when Moses told them from God, you cannot murder. Well, secondly, as we move forward in this, having mentioned Jesus, Jesus, of course, is the only one who obeyed the sixth command. Jesus valued and promoted life. Think of the Gospels alone through his ministry. He, he gives the, the deaf hearing. He causes the blind to see. Uh, he takes the sick and heals them of their diseases. From individuals who were lame from birth, that is, if you can imagine that lame from birth, it would have been so withered, he would grow their limb. And ultimately, we know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, from grieving friends. Jesus is the true image bearer because Jesus is deity. He's God in the flesh. Jesus obeyed, as our confession calls us to, in thought, word, and deed. Jesus never murdered anybody. Rather, he 
gave people life, including all of you, church. He gave you life. In Jesus, God offers eternal life. Jesus would say this in John's gospel. He say, Jesus would say, I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father no man can have eternal life except they come through him. Jesus is the only way. This, of course, was God's redemptive covenant from eternity past. The Father sent the Son. The Son went willingly in love. And Jesus died for sinners. Aren't you glad he did? But on the human heart, there was a different plan that was in place. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we know this because we believe that God is sovereign in all things and that he's sovereign to save. But we certainly want to understand this. That was not the plan for the human beings that were on the earth, for many of them, while Jesus walked. They had a different plan. The Jews wanted to murder Jesus, and the Romans, just to get over the obnoxiousness of the arousal of the Jews, wanted to see Jesus killed as well. Now follow this with me, because both are true. I want you to think about this. Christ dying was the eternal plan of God for redemption, yet it played out in real time by murderous hearts motivated by Satan. I don't think that clash is any more clear than when you look at the upper room when the Savior washes the feet of the disciples, and he looks into Judas's eye. And Judas goes out into the night. John chapter 13. Look at verse 23. Chapter 2, just to give you an idea of what's going on here, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's literally going through a, a biblical theology of redemption through all of the Old Testament. He will address murderous hearts, but note this with me. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up, okay, that was when he was delivered over to the, the false court, we'll get to them in a minute, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and the foreordained plan was of the Trinity, that this would take place. Yet when it was going out in time and space, it was coming through murderous hearts because he indicts them, from verse 22, men of Israel, you have crucified and killed by the hands of men that are lawless. 
You see that combination there. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 28. Same book, the book of Acts. So now the... Peter and John have been released. The church is praying. They're praying to this sovereign God of ours. They address Him in verse 24. They call Him Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They call upon our Lord as Creator. And, and they know, please picture this. Put, put your mind around this. The attacks are real. People are dying for the gospel. And so they don't pray for it to stop. <laughs> they, they acknowledge that the kings of the earth have set themselves, verse 26, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, that's Jesus of Nazareth, and against his anointed. Look at verse 28, though. While they're plotting their murderous evil, lawless hands, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, friends, redemption is the eternal plan of God, but let's not get this wrong, it was played out in space and time by murderous people. People who hated Jesus. Think of this. Christ's death as God's eternal plan and he's dying because some of these murderous people are going to get turned right while they're killing him. But let's be clear about this. The Jews and the Romans simply wanted Jesus dead. It's the most egregious murder that the world has ever known. A kangaroo court put together, breaking their own laws, convicting the innocent, pure Son of God. Yet Christ's death would conquer our death, church, because it's through his death that we gain a victory. The church is reconciled to God by Christ's death. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So Jesus obeyed the tenth or, or the sixth command. He, he obeyed the tenth command too. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he obeyed all of them. In thought, word, and deed. That's what Jesus did. And it's through his death by murderous men, God brought eternal life. Jesus, of course, obeys the sixth command. So where does this leave us? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I remember as a kid... Sue Carroll was my Sunday school teacher. She was the one, of course, alongside with my parents, but in her Bible class that I learned the Ten Commandments. 
And as I thought about that uh, this week, I remember <laughs> thinking, man, I got that one. I ain't killed nobody. I'm all right with that one. You know, it seems like we're going to go through a big of, a, a series of, of, of bigger ones that, that are in our minds that way. And murder seemed like, you know, the easiest to obey. Well, how is it that the church would obey, right, that you shall not, we cannot admit, uh, commit murder? Well, Jesus would take many things on the Sermon on the Mount, but I want you to follow this with me. Look at verse 21. Jesus will say this, You have heard that it was said to those of old. Okay, so he's reckoning them back to the account, in this case of the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That, of course, was um, defined out in the law. But Jesus says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus says before you even commit murder, the base of murder starts with anger in your heart. And where does that leave us? We're in a room full of murderers. Every one of you are a murderer. And so am I. Because I've had anger in my heart. And so having anger in my heart, in God's eyes, I've committed murder. And here's what the Bible says about the law and the law of God, which Jesus fulfilled in thought, word, and deed. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, If you violate the law in one part... You are guilty of all of it. You are guilty of all of it. We all sat here this morning guilty of the sixth commandment. For those of you that do not know Jesus, let me tell you this. You are killing your own soul in your rejection of Christ. You are committing spiritual suicide that you will give an account for that will end in eternal judgment unless you repent and take Jesus as Lord and as Savior. This is the call of the gospel. And so amidst all this bad news, and it really is bad news, because as good as you may have thought you to be, We've now found out, we've all committed murder, that I stand here in front of you guilty before God. And yet, God accounts to me His Son's righteousness because He died for my sin. What do I got to do? What do you need to do to keep from killing your own soul? To keep from committing spiritual suicide, you need to, first of all, 
repent. Repentance entails this. You need to understand and acknowledge that you are a sinner. And in the weight of that sin that you cannot bear on your own, you need to understand you can find forgiveness. Because God in his mercy extends forgiveness through Jesus. That's what God is doing. This is what has happened in the text that we've just witnessed. God offers life. And he loves to give life. When someone comes into the kingdom, there is a rejoicing that goes on in heaven that we'll only fully understand when we experience this with God. God offers life. But you have to understand that you are lost and there is absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. And you need to think about that. You need to contemplate that. You need not to pass that off. You need to bear the burden of that. So much so to allow it to trouble your heart. Because if you do not repent, you'll face eternal judgment. And in that moment, when God can so convict you, of the burden and the weight of your sin, know this, there is relief for your troubled soul. There's relief. That relief is found in the person of Jesus. I must acknowledge my sin. I must understand that, that I need to repent of my sin. I need to understand I've got to... I need forgiveness and, and that I can't find forgiveness in myself and I need to cast myself to trust in Jesus alone. And that takes three things. It takes knowledge of the gospel, which in simplicity is that God is holy, that I am dreadfully sinful, and that Jesus alone can save me by his life, death, and resurrection. That knowledge of the gospel that is necessary for you to become a Christian is only found in the words of God. Once you have acknowledged that, you then, in hearing the components of the gospel, you must assent for those things mentally to be true, not only of the gospel, but of you. That you are a sinner and that you need a savior and that that savior is only found in the son of God who was murdered so that you could become a Christian. I've found in my life there's a lot of people, particularly in, a, in America, because we've been inundated with the gospel for a long time. Though, that's transitioned a lot too. There's a lot of people that don't know the gospel. What a wonderful opportunity this is for us. 
But here's the, here's the final component to genuine belief in Christ because there are a lot of people that have a knowledge. There's a lot of people who have a scent. Man, I had it. And yet I did not have Jesus until I trusted in Christ alone to save me. I beg of you, taste the sweetness of Jesus. Please don't sit there in your pride. Your pride's going to send you to hell. Humble your heart before God. While there's hope, hope only comes in this life. So as a result of that church, here's the promise that we tell people. All that come to God, God will in no wise cast out. If you come to God according to God's terms, which are only found in Christ, He will never cast you out. He will receive you and He will keep you to the end, John chapter 17 tells us. As, as, as God's people, the church, we are called, and I think this is the antithesis to those who are angry and, and those who are murderers in our heart. We are called to reconcile people to God. It's called the ministry of reconciliation. We are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But beyond that, though that's essential and the most important, we are called to love people. So much hate. God has called you by his love to take his love for people that hate God. And they may even hate you. You say, I can't do that. Yes, you can if you know Jesus. Because this is true. People are created in the image of God. Stop hating others. This is not God's plan. Quit being angry with those of a different ethnicity. Economical walk, intellectual walk. Quit desiring malice towards others. Because Jesus took the wrath of God for you. Rather, church, let's flip this around. Let's live in peace with each other. Let's seek mercy. Let's seek mercy for one another. Not casting judgment. 
Let's show kindness to one another. Let's extend friendship with people who are not like us. Let me ask you something. Do you have a friend that isn't Christian? And if you don't, make one. Someone who walks a life opposite of you. Practice love. I want you to think about this. If your Christianity is leading you to hate anyone, you're doing it wrong. And the, and the example of that is never, never any greater than Paul. Paul gets to Felix, and Felix has the authority that can put him to death. Paul gets to Agrippa. You read the book of Acts, and Agrippa has a play on the fact if Paul will die. And Paul, while he may be appealing for his life under Roman law, being a Roman, he yet preaches Jesus to them. I don't have any doubt that when Nero beheaded Paul, Paul was probably preaching the gospel to him. And you want to know why? Because Paul believed that all people are created in the image of God and they deserve your love. They deserve your love. And they deserve my love. And so there's three applications to this and I'll quit. Love your God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Cherish the life that God gave you and the new life that God has given you. Promote life and understand this, that all those people around you that don't know Jesus, God can give life in a nanosecond. So give them Jesus. Secondly, love your church. Brothers and sisters, honor one another Prefer one another. Admonish one another. Be kind to one another. Show mercy to one another. There are a hundred one another concepts in the New Testament. And all of those things just reflect that God's people love the church. And then thirdly this. And if this isn't you, before you take the Eucharist, where you thank God for giving you new life. Though he was murdered, you ask God to forgive you if you cannot love people who are created in the image of God, who God says has eternal value. Cast off your sinful hatred. And the most loving move that you can make is to offer them Christ as you make a new friend. Don't show them how much you know till you show them how much you care about them. In all of the theology, which we dearly love around here, if that doesn't lead us to want to love others and to love our brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean a thing. Not a thing. But of course, we know that genuine theology and doctrine does cause us to love. I know I have the capacity to love someone else because I don't deserve to be a Christian. Point him to Jesus. Jesus will give him life.
Jesus will give them life abundant. Jesus will give them life eternal. Church, do not murder. Rather, offer life. Let's pray. Father, now as we transition to this table, I pray for our church. I pray for myself. I pray you will help me to deal with any anger perhaps that is in my heart even before we take this table. Lord, if someone is harboring hatred in their heart and they don't want to repent it, keep them from the bread and the cup because they'll only eat and drink judgment to themselves. Cause them to repent. Jesus helped the church know assuredly that as you have convicted them by, their, by your Holy Spirit, that there's forgiveness in your nail-scarred hands for their hatred of any group of people moving them in this hour so that we will leave this place united in love to take the gospel of Christ to the world. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.